0: And it was only last month we had George Megalogenis on R talking with us about Melbourne's particular role in Australia's economic miracle of more than two decades of economic growth and even, I suppose, our ability to weather that economic crisis of 2008-9. So it's only proper that we get him back now. George, none of us could have predicted things could change so quickly, but like the rest of the world, Australia is heading into a recession, maybe a deep one. Um, we've not dodged this one, and uh, you've been writing how this pandemic is snap-freezing the country and challenging our federation. It'd be great to pick your brains on on how you, how you see things.
2: Yeah, it'd be great to swap some thoughts too. Uh, good morning. Uh, no one can predict the pandemic. Uh, this is a once-in-a-century event, and sort of the story has moved so quickly in the last two or three weeks. And I, I, even if I took it a step back to two weeks ago when um, the government was still hoping to muddle their way through with a little bit of stimulus and the Reserve Bank um, basically going to the thing called quantitative easing, which is essentially pretty money. Uh, Even that seems like a century ago, uh, because what's uh, going down across the world is that economies have been deliberately shut down a place uh, to prioritize health over all other things and when you shut down large parts of the economy whatever the calculation is 60, 70, 80 90% some of the data we look at now which is that sort of mobility around capital cities around the world I don't you know if you've been tracking some of that information, uh, movements are down to you know, below 10% what they normally would be around a city so when you, when you shut an economy down like that and you go as hard and as quickly as that's gone, the question of recession is redundant I and mean, you're going to have one. But the, the next question is how long? And no one knows how long because no one has uh, been able to... We, we literally don't have enough information on the virus itself and how long this, the virus itself will be um, disrupting uh, the globe.
1: And you wrote earlier this year in amidst the bushfire crisis in um, The Age and and the Sydney Morning Herald about leadership in in particular and the Prime Minister's leadership in this latest article – you talk about federalism and the way that, um, you know, the kind of the National Cabinet has operated and the likes of uh, Dan Andrews and Gladys Berejiklian and, and their relative power um, in comparison to the Commonwealth. How do you see leadership in these times and that sort of power-sharing almost arrangement between the states um, and territories and the Commonwealth?
2: Yeah, this is the thing. You couldn't have predicted this even this a week ago. Uh, As the, again, we sort of begin with the first principles nation-states get locked down, and then within nation-states, cities get locked down. And I think once you move to that level of uh, sort of command economy, which is basically directing everybody to do nothing, uh, to prioritise health, uh, health in the Constitution is a state responsibility, not a federal responsibility, suddenly what happens on the ground at a state level matters probably more than what the Commonwealth does. The Commonwealth, in terms of its powers, can close the borders... It's got the checkbook. Uh, it, can, it can mobilise the military. But the, the way the Federation was designed, it was designed to leave as much tactical power, uh, service delivery power with the states. And this is the thing that's kicking in now. Now, the way the National Cabinet works, and this is an improvised arrangement, uh, the Prime Minister at the beginning of this process and all the Premiers and the Chief Ministers at their very first meeting a couple of weeks ago were all on the same page. Uh, this is a national crisis, Uh, we're not arguing about health. Normally when we come to these um, forums, this is in the past, understanding how the federation works, the Commonwealth holds the checkbook, the states are delivering the services so they're begging for cash and they're always arguing the Commonwealth doesn't want to give the states as much money as the states want uh, for their for their hospital system, and the states, of course, don't really want to tax them tax their own population. They want to they want to blame ships of the Commonwealth. All of that was supposed to have disappeared the moment this crisis started, and it was interesting. I quoted Andrews saying, "We're not going to be uh, uh, we're not going to be arguing. We're not going to be squabbling," was the phrase he used, uh, dealing with this crisis. Of course, what happened, and reality kicks in really quickly. Uh, the epicenter is is uh, Sydney. And Melbourne is, sort of, is almost its twin epicenter, 20%, but Sydney's obviously got a uh, bigger caseload at the moment. And the interests of those two states to move earlier to, um, to, to lockdown, essentially you know, from uh, sort of level two to level three lockdowns, and we're at level three now. Um, those, those interests tended to um, tended to dominate the discussions within the uh, within the national cabinet. Scott Morrison, and he's explained this, he didn't want a situation where Melbourne goes into a lockdown, but Adelaide isn't in a lockdown. He didn't want to be panicking people in Adelaide. They've been thinking all along that they wanted a, a, a gradual escalation in control. Uh, but the Victorians, and this is probably the most interesting bit of the story at the moment, the Victorians and the health advice at, uh, at the state level in Victoria was to always go harder from the beginning. Commonwealth advice is is a gradual. There's an awful phrase Scott Morrison uses, "scalable." I don't understand what "scalable" means. Is it rock climbing? Is it uh, <laughs> is it the thing you do to is it the thing you do to fish before you put them in the oven? I don't know what "scalable" actually means. I'm not supposed to be a jargon a jargon king, but the commonwealth the commonwealth uh, approach from the beginning was to uh, they they assume that the pandemic couldn't be beaten. You couldn't completely isolate your country. So there were going to be infections at some point. And what they wanted to do was to gradually step up uh, without panicking the population. The Victorians obviously wanted to go earlier and wanted to go harder. And right now, this is the debate. Uh, and it was the debate all of last week. You could you could sort of feel in that argument, not just on on what what level of uh, control you're at, but also the question of whether schools stay open or not. Both those states... Uh, Different reasons in New South Wales, but both those states have—I uh, wouldn't say they've been pulling rank, because it's a slightly different—that that, that, that implies that they've taken over. I don't think they've taken over, but I think the local interest in the, in, the, in the short run in this debate um, will tend to dominate the national interest.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting to talk about those two approaches and and how they kind of interrelate, because it has been the source of some criticism and commentary that kind of I've, I've observed on social media around the need to take more drastic measures as a nation, but some people suggesting, and not just kind of, of lay people, but quite prominent commentators suggesting, you know, this isn't the time for um, overly criticising the government, suggesting it might even be kind of counterproductive. How do you view accountability and, and, and the need for that kind of, um, you know, quite concerted, focused criticism, I guess, particularly given that Parliament's been suspended for the time being?
2: Yeah, good question. So if, if, if all the brain power in Australia was in that room, Advising the national cabinet, uh, lay people on in social media shout all they want, but there's really not much benefit in going to their opinions. Uh, but a lot of the people who are in social media that I've been paying attention to are experts in the area, and and the fact that there's there's uh, that there are two schools of thought, and the uh, the chief medical officer and his deputy now have admitted this. But there are two cool schools of thought. Essentially, it's the, it's, it's the lockdown school of thought, which is the Victorian school of thought, and the gradual school of thought, which is the Commonwealth school of thought. All the other experts in and around who are not in the room but clearly have a voice, uh, because they have got expertise in the area, are also for going harder. So when you're, when you're in that level of... And uh, both sides uh, have got positions that are, that are honestly held there's no politics here because this is an argument between experts. You need to have that argument. You need to have that argument uh, almost on a daily basis, an hourly basis even, without sort of stressing people out because life and death matter. And remember, most of the data we're looking at is, is the hindsight of 14 days. And the way this pandemic is moving, uh, where you're getting a double of the caseloads every two or three days, uh, you can't afford to... to Pick a position and stick with it. You just can't afford to do that. And uh, I think it's, everybody's adjusting, and certainly a, a character like Scott Morrison, who sort of got to the Prime Minister's job without after completing a sentence, certainly not in a, in a question and answer um, setting. Now, I don't mean this... Uh, uh, to be ta- don't take this personally. It's not an attack on him as an individual, but the system that permitted that particular type of politician to rise to the Prime Minister's job uh, didn't have much scrutiny on the
0: way through. Yeah, it's interesting to to look at that though, isn't it? And I mean, well, I mean, what's your thought with regards to the, the national cabinet that's in play that we know and it's been said many times that, you know, the leader of the opposition, Anthony Albanese, is not part of that and very much Labor is being cooperative at the federal level but also being in opposition and we're seeing even their IR spokesperson coming out today, industrial relations spokesperson, you know, really wanting to scrutinize the, the support that comes through, offering to, to reconvene parliament, that sort of thing. Um, what's your, your thought of, of the opposition remaining in opposition through this period? I think there's
2: yeah, this is this is this is the tr- the tricky thing about it is what would happen in a in a war situation, you'd still have an advisory cabinet. What happens in a caretaker situation during an election campaign, uh, the public service is neutral. So we're not in either of those positions, but we should adapt the model uh, in a crisis like this uh, to include the opposition somehow. And I think I think transparency in, in advice and information is, is, is probably key. I think New Zealand is always in a slightly better position than we are because their, their public service hasn't been afraid of releasing information. And that's just basically their tradition, and their argument always is that um, you actually you get decent scrutiny, but you don't get much trouble from media if you hide everything in plain sight. That does, and this is the thing I was alluding to earlier with the way Scott Morrison has conducted himself on the way up. He doesn't like sharing information. It's not in his nature. And the system rewarded him for, uh, for, you know, without getting into the jargon, for behaving the way he did for a good 10 or 12 years. Remember, uh, on Water Matters, you couldn't talk about them. Uh, when he was treasurer, there was not much information he shared there. Um, you didn't even know how he got the job of prime minister. Again, this is a particular this is a particular way of operating, and his instincts will be even whilst he's in the national cabinet scenario, sharing powers with chief ministers and premiers. And five of the eight, uh, Labor, uh, a Labor. So he's he's sort of come a long way in dealing with them. But he doesn't want to he doesn't want to share this podium with Anthony Albanese. Now I don't think that's appropriate, by the way. But you still need and I was alluding to this earlier, you don't have time to pick a position and then stick with it because if your position is wrong, you have to be able to move very quickly and you need as many voices as possible to scrutinise the, the decision-making on the way or even to test the assumptions. The, opposition, the opposition's best job at the moment is, is to fly the flag for every individual worker in the country and, and also for sectors of the economy uh, that don't normally get attention uh, with a coalition government. And I think it's important that they continue to shout as loudly as possible in this respect. Uh, so let's uh, sort of we're jumping ahead, but think about the safety net. The safety net at the moment uh, is still a reactive thing. Begins with okay, we we'll look after small business, give them half their tax back if they if they pay their tax on time. Uh, we'll put a little safety net in with a with a, with a by doubling the, essentially doubling the dial. I can pick about six holes in that situation already. Casuals. Uh, sole traders, and contractors. Uh, none, of those, none of those people, and there's millions of them across the country, and we we'll us think specifically about something that's near and dear to our heart, which is the arts sector. Uh, people have had basically all their forward work for the next six months cancelled. Incomes reduced to zero. Now, a coalition government it shouldn't be expected to know all this in one go, uh, but it shouldn't uh, be afraid to hear complaints from the real world um, when their safety net misses people. That's, and that is essentially the job of the opposition. Yeah. Just honestly, I feel like I'm, like I'm raving at the moment, but just on the question of parliament, uh, half of Victoria uh, that's in the private school, that's got kids in the private school system, uh, more or less than a few in the state system would have, would have had a Zoom class or two by now. I don't know why you can't do a virtual parliament.
0: Well, you know what, they do it in Estonia already, and um, they already have voting from home and so forth within their parliamentary system. And I know they're a tiny country compared to Australia, both geographically and with numbers, but those models do exist globally. And so it would be interesting to see if they can be mobilised in this time. I absolutely agree. What was the
2: G20 about the other day? I saw, the, I saw the picture coming out of the PMO, uh, the Prime Minister's office. There's a picture of Scott Morrison sitting at desk with um, Phil Gauchens, he's um, the head of his department, um, uh, you know, at a, at, a, at a respectful distance, about two chairs away from him, and staring at a big board with the other 19 um, leaders.
1: Yeah, it's something that's... It's possible. It it's seems possible. entirely achievable. That's right. And, and I mean, there's, there's so much, uh, uh, you know thinking going on about how this pandemic changes us as a society, how it changes us as a nation and so on. And of course, we, we don't know exactly how it will, but you've written about, and it's what we spoke to you about last time, the sort of massive changes in Australia's history and how it's kind of consolidated um, power, economic power or kind of population growth in, in Melbourne and, and Sydney and the like. What do you see happening as a result of I guess the, the coordinated action that's happening in Australia currently in terms of federalism but also, uh, you know, jobs going forward and the jobs that might be available to people across the nation, do you think will still continue to be that very high population growth in the, the Melbourne and, and Sydney city centres?
2: Yeah, this is a good question. Uh, a really good question. I, I had a look at... Um, last week we had the, the data for 2019, some more population data, and it includes in that sort of data pack the... Um, in state migration story. So if you begin with the lockdown scenario for the next six to twelve months you're probably not going to get a big uh, net overseas migration bump. Uh you'll get a lot of Australians coming home and a lot of uh foreign nationals, whether they've got whether they whether they're permanent settlers or whether they've got temporary visas uh going the other way. Uh, so one thing we can't predict, um, but I like to get an idea of it in the next couple of months is, is how many Australians are coming home and how many Chinese are leaving. For instance, it's a it's a big question because it'll affect the um, it'll affect the um, sort of demography of the bigger cities, Melbourne and Sydney. But when I was looking at the um, interstate migration uh, numbers the other day, it occurred to me again, and it occurs to you each time you open that pack. Only two capital cities uh, receive people in net terms. More people uh, move to the city than go the other way. And the people who go the other way tend to be retirees. And that's only Melbourne and Brisbane. Sydney, and one of the reasons why Melbourne was going to catch Sydney uh, quickly uh, was... Roughly the same number of uh, uh, births, roughly the same number of overseas migrants. The big difference at the margin, it's not actually at the margin, but the big difference was 20,000 people a year will, would leave Sydney in more terms and 10,000 people a year would move to Melbourne. That's plus 30 in Melbourne's favour. Uh, a decade ago, Sydney had 300,000 more people in Melbourne. You know, within the decade, you'd think other things being equal, that gap would close to zero. I think that might still happen. Um, but the question that we don't know uh, the answer to at the moment is whether is whether people are going to, after, especially after the, um, the sort of first wave of the virus sort of peaks in the Sydney and Melbourne, whether people in the regions move back to the cities. I don't know. Uh, one thing, one thing that's that's up in the air at the moment, and the thing that drives uh, net emigration out of Sydney is their property market. If if you take 20% off the top of every property market in Australia and suddenly it's a, li- it's a little more affordable to live in Sydney, they might not lose as many people and they might start collecting people from the regions. Hard to know. Uh, one thing you can be confident of, uh, because this is what your history tells you, uh, through the Depression of the 1890s, through the Depression of the 1930s, through the shock of the First World War, Spanish flu, uh, you know, really ordinary 1920s, uh, and in the post-war reconstruction of the Second World War, is at each point uh, uh, the rate of urbanisation, you know, the proportion of the population that lives in the capitals, actually increased each time. But I can't see how this this crisis would play out any differently at that level. Uh, the Melbourne-Sydney argument you now is a um, you know, conversation we had a month ago. I don't think I don't think the fundamentals have changing that argument, that discussion we had. The thing that we didn't anticipate is. And this is the thing for the for the short to medium term is how a Victoria and a New South Wales operate in the federation.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, George Meiklejohnis is with us, and you can read his latest um, thoughts uh, in an article in the Age of Sydney Morning Herald. Um, but I wanted there was something that you wrote in that piece, um, George, that made me think about you know the uh, sort of a tale of two countries. We've heard about the two speed economy and so forth in the mining boom, but but this idea that, that Melbourne, Sydney might go a different direction to other parts of the country because we have uh, economies that have more young people uh, and f- and also well placed to take advantage of the, the knowledge economy, which at the moment is, is less touched than other parts of the economy. Uh, yeah, and you're alluding to that. Now, I mean, is this something that you think will, will come out in the wash over the next couple of months and maybe even a couple of years?
2: Yeah, because the thing about a shock like this is that it, it, it stops some trends dead in, dead, in, dead in their tracks and accelerates others. And I think one of the things that it accelerates is, is that sort of the tech side and the knowledge side of the economy. And unfortunately for the rest of the country, and I'd, you know, as much as I'd like to fly the flag for Melbourne, unfortunately for the rest of the country... In that last 10 or so years especially since we went into that sort of supersized skilled migration uh, uh, wave boom, uh, Victoria and especially Melbourne, New South Wales and especially Sydney and to a lesser extent Canberra hoarded all the skilled migrants between them. And the equation. Uh, remind people in this particular equation, 40% of the population, just over 40% live in Melbourne and Sydney. And that's unusual by, by global standards. To have two cities of roughly equal size taking up close to half the population of the country. Uh, the second point is more than half of all the migrants in Australia live in those two cities. More than 60% of the Indians and more than 60, 70% of the Chinese live in those two cities. So what that tells you in that last 10 years is that, uh, is that the skilled workers have been hoarded in Melbourne and Sydney Remember, in the, in the same period, a lot of retirees are moving, are moving to the coast. So those two cities are well and truly ready to. to whether 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 the economy booms or not in the next few years is is not the point. It's their relative position. Their position relative to the other part of the country. Uh, and the thing I was worried about before the pandemic was, at what point do you start intervening in the um, in the sort of population market? One of a better terms. And help and help the country share the bounty from overseas. We're not able to do that if um, if migration sort of sort of rolls to practically zero in the next couple of years. Uh, so how do you convince people in Melbourne and Sydney to share what it is they learn in this crisis with the rest of the country? I'm not confident. Unfortunately, I'm not confident that um, that the interests of those two cities can be made to realign with the rest of the country, especially in a federation where. And at the last election, as in a number of elections in the last decade, uh, people in Melbourne and Sydney voted one way, and the rest of the country voted the other. It's very difficult. It's very difficult to see how you how you, how you connect the country up again in whatever comes next. And um, I think, in Melbourne and Sydney, are to take what they can for themselves.
0: Well, I did say in introducing you, George, that um, it's a great moment really for observers, and um, you've done a really. Um, Good service here, sharing your your um, I suppose observations with the Triple R listeners, and we hope to get you back really soon. Yeah, I appreciate it. It'd be good
2: to do it in the studio again because it's hard to make eye contact
0: <laughs> I know it's nicer in studio. Well, we're getting used to it. <laughs> There's some things. At least we can flip people onto the phone pretty easily. But yeah, fingers crossed next time we can have you have you in person here in the studio at Triple R. Thanks heaps. Looking Thanks again. Thanks, George George, George of course you can follow him on social media as well.
1: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform.
0: There are reports from across the world about the environment getting a reprieve through this period, especially in industrial cities where air pollution is normally an issue. But obviously, we need more than a few months or a year off when it comes to improving air quality and cutting emissions. Uh, sustained reduction that's not linked to tanking the economy, of course, and that's what's kind of been spoken about at the UN level and the like. And it's good time, therefore, to have Cam Walker back with us. He's been a long-term advocate of emissions being decoupled from economic growth and he's with Friends of the Earth and it's great to have you, Cam. Thanks, Carly. And obviously we're still going through an economic contraction and businesses going into the hibernation and the like but if we look over in China, things are opening up again and uh, many people here are also looking to the other side of this pandemic about what stimulus might look like. What do you see? Do you see kind of a environmental flavour to, to any economic stimulus that comes our way?
3: Yes. Well, you have to hope that that's what will happen. Uh, we're actually releasing a little report today on what a, a green stimulus might look like. Um, but obviously in the short term, I think what's really interesting is a lot of previous assumptions have changed overnight. So all of a sudden here in Australia, we're talking about radical market interventions like moratoriums on evictions and increases in rent, and we're looking at the concept of a universal basic income, so it's quite remarkable how quickly the status quo can change when external forces uh, kind of come into play.
1: Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it, isn't it Cam? Because we're seeing such, um, you know, significant large-scale changes to our economy and government intervention that we couldn't have imagined, um, you know, a, a few weeks ago, let alone a few years ago. So in some ways, there might be, um, you know, a possibility that we're kind of primed for more ambitious action on climate change and tackling kind of a a common global threat, so to speak. But Kind of on the other hand, we're also, uh, you know, addressing so much in relation to COVID-19 and the coronavirus. Is there a concern at all that this is taking up a lot of oxygen that kind of will distract us from more effective action on on climate change and emissions reduction into the future?
3: Yeah, so of course we've got to concentrate on COVID-19 and get on top of that. um, I think any government that's worth its salt needs to be able to walk and chew gum, i.e. do more than one thing at the same time. And it's really essential that in investing massive injection of public funds into the economy that transformation that actually guides us towards renewables but also looks after people along the way.
0: Yeah and I think um, this idea that the market is going to bring us through this um, you know even uh, you know magazines like The Economist are saying the role for government right now is enormous and Actually, you know, it was interesting reading an article there over the weekend that they see just propping up existing polluting industry as being the lazy approach. And I, I wonder, though, uh, whether it will happen anyway.
3: Well, our government federally hasn't given any indication that it actually is going to use this crisis as an opportunity to put it on a, on a more equitable and a more sustainable footing. It's very much stuck in a mind frame of business as usual. Uh, that's unfortunate. I think some of the state governments are doing some really interesting things, but really this is around continuing to mobilise the voices in civil society to ensure that the vulnerable are heard, that environmental voices are heard, and that... That voices that advocating for sustainability are also heard. And I think um, just the recent announcements or the recent conversation around a universal basic income, and that is being very widely supported outside the usual parts of society that you would expect to support it, I think that it's very clear that we are on the cusp of potential change. And if you look at the history of, pandemics and and, and crises you have a lot happen during the crisis but then you also often have profound and sometimes unprecedented economic and political and cultural change after the pandemic is over so we need to be looking beyond the curve on this and thinking well how do we make things better how do we build social inclusion and how do we build real local community resilience how do we build
0: I wonder, I mean, one thing that is still up the sleeve of the federal government anyway and the federal uh, energy and emissions minister is their technology roadmap. And I don't know if anyone's close enough to that process at the moment with so much else going on that's a priority, but we still haven't seen it. Um, Do you think that it might be, um, I suppose, made to suit the times?
3: have to hope so. I mean as I said before I really don't think that this federal government gets it in terms of climate change and certainly not in terms of really helping to build grassroots community resilience but it's very interesting and it is unprecedented that we have a national cabinet at present that includes the state governments and some of them like Victoria are actually very progressive on energy issues so you have to wonder about those conversations and how much the need to collaborate and the need to build consensus might actually push the federal government into some new terrain which is actually kind of, you know, more cognizant of the fact that we are in the middle of a climate crisis thus far. You know, the, the climate dinosaurs um, that want to see more coal and nuclear power and all that sort of nonsense have, are dominant in the federal coalition, but you have to hope that under the current scenario where everyone, state government and federal government, is at the table, we get some more common sense outcomes from that process.
1: And it's interesting you, you raised the states and, and their approaches to energy because we've heard since we last spoke to you that the Victorian government has lifted its ban on onshore gas exploration but at the same time reaffirmed the ban on on unconventional gas exploration and and fracking and is um, apparently set to enshrine that in the state's constitution how do you see that in in the broader mix of where we're at with climate and energy policy
3: That was uh, very disappointing, but also a very strange announcement from the state government. It's fantastic that the government listened to the community on the question of fracking. And uh, they also uh, enacted a moratorium on onshore conventional gas drilling, and they've now indicated their intention to lift the moratorium. So it's mixed messages, great on the one hand, negative on the other hand, and it's disappointing to see the state government, which is very progressive on climate issues, suggesting that gas is a transition fuel you know, that's an argument from the 1990s. With the development of storage and if the development of renewable energy in the last 10 years, that's just an argument that doesn't have it doesn't have any weight anymore. So it's disappointing to see that they did that. And the other puzzling thing is even in the government's report that says uh, we recommend lifting the moratorium, they admit that it won't impact on prices and it won't impact on the demand shortfall that we're facing in a couple of winters. So you have to wonder why they took what will be quite an unpopular decision because it will aggravate rural communities really for no benefit for for local consumers
0: we 're talking with uh, cam Walker from Friends of the Earth, and I wonder cam I, I mean you alluded to that sort of cabinet, the national cabinet um, of uh, including the Prime Minister and also um, health experts and heads of uh, all our st- different state and territory governments and I wonder um, with the influence that you know all states and territories now have a, a sort of a, a goal towards net zero emissions by two thousand and fifty whether we will start to see emission reduction targets announced through this time or like Victoria where we might see a delay in that, um, whether these targets might be kind of um, kicked off da- down the road for a while?
3: Yes. So we're hoping it won't be. Um Actually, tomorrow the Victorian government is required to announce what emission reduction targets it intends to enact for the years 2025 and 2030, and then they're meant to table um, that uh, announcement in Parliament within 10 days. Um, there was an independent panel that was created by the Victorian government to suggest targets, and they were they were suggesting targets of 45 to 60 percent reductions by 2030. The science says we need to do more, um, up to or beyond 70. emission reductions locally here in Victoria by 2030. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they respond. Obviously state government, like other governments, is really involved in responding to the COVID crisis. So Will they blink and you know push it push the can down the track a little bit more, or will they uh, make an announcement this week? We are arguing very strongly. We need to do our bit to keep global emissions under 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming, and we're saying the government needs to listen to the science. So we're very hopeful that common sense will
1: prevail on that one. And the need for action is is clear to see. There's an, yet another report out today. Um, the Australia's Environment report that um, reveals that 2019 was um, the worst recorded, I think, result in Australia in a century and certainly the worst recorded across the, the years analysed from the year 2000s. What's your response to that? And, and I guess the, what that might lead to in terms of, um, uh, you know, activism or, or climate action from any of our governments? Well,
3: if you read the report, it is really devastating. I mean, it's everything we know, you know, the unprecedented bushfires and the record heat and, you know, low flow in the rivers and more um, species announced to be endangered or threatened. Like, it's it's incredibly grim reading. So, it's, in a, in a way, it's nothing new, but you have to hope that it does actually become, you know, the, the light on the dashboard that gets the governments to go, oh, gosh, there's something going on here. Um, one of the things that jumped out at me from that report was they noted there's a small bird... That lives in inland Australia. It's a nomadic bird. It's called the Crimson Chat. Quite a quite a small, mobile, very kind of beautiful little bird in this report they talk about how it is it hasn't gone to extinction but it's moving out of its normal ecosystems within inland Australia and moving to the coast so all these subtle changes of climate change are happening under our very noses they're happening every day they're they're built into for instance the unprecedented fires of this summer and yet we kind of don't see them so reports like this are really important because they they crystallize in a moment of time the changes that are happening and the ecosystems that are in collapse and they make it very clear. And by making it clear, it makes it apparent to governments that, well, they need to accept this data and either choose to do something or decide to ignore it and go on with business as usual. So you have to hope that governments will look at this. It is from the Australian National University. It's a very good bit of work. And you have to hope that governments will choose to accept the data in this and act to reduce our emissions. And they note that global heating as well as natural variability is what's driving these impacts on ecosystems, rivers and oceans.
0: It feels really important to have these sorts of conversations, cam like we're having now, however, what's your sense of of you know overwhelm with regards to this really long term serious challenge that we have with with climate change and in this very hopefully short term or shorter term crises that we're having around health and how that's restricting our movements right now i mean how how do you kind of pair that in your day to day?
3: I think that uh, many people have been realising in recent years that business as usual isn't working for people. You know, more and more people are are pushed into gig economies where they have no support or no no infrastructure that backs them when they lose their work. We've been winding down our public infrastructure and our social services and our public health. I think that people have been getting that it isn't working for them and now we have this moment of crisis and a moment of crisis is often a pivot point for society. And what I'm seeing is, incredible conversations around community resilience and incredible conversations around how do we respond as local communities in our neighborhoods in our towns in our cities so i actually feel you know we're all nervous we're all locked in at home we're all thinking about what to do but i also am seeing a remarkable online conversation that's going on um around well how do we make this better and how do we come out of this stronger as community so i feel strangely hopeful uh, even though these are quite scary times
0: Hopeful and urgent. <laughs> Thank you, Cam. Hopeful it's, and urgent. Yeah, it's really um, good to have you, and we'll, we'll catch you again next month. And take care until then, of course. Thank you. You too, Cam right. Walker. You can find him over at Friends the Earth. Um, a regular voice here on Three Triple R. Probably it's... can't
1: find him literally there at the moment, oh, well, but he's—he's he's around. You know,
0: <laughs> online—that's the world these days, Dylan.
1: Hey, I've been—I've been shut up him in a room by myself for a long time. So <laughs> you can <go> and <laughs> find. to happen
0: online.
1: <laughs> you can find him online. He's around. That is the only certified coronavirus medicine, I think. Get down with Chris Gill. Keeps you going.
0: Irresistible. Well, it turns out too, though, that in a pandemic, we don't just turn to Chris Gill. We turn to our gardens and start planting vegetable seedlings and seeds. And Donna Morabito's phone is running off the hook she's long-term triple a triple a broadcaster past host of this program and she's been right in the thick of it because she's also with the diggers club and the diggers club are our heirloom seed specialists and uh, everyone wants your stuff donna
4: they absolutely do, Kalia. Hello to you both and Dylan. What a lovely intro over there. It's so <laughs> nice to hook in with the Triple R Fam at this crazy time.
1: I know. It's it's great to hear your voice. Um, what's it been like down there as, you know, people have been facing the prospect of spending much more time at home and potentially in their gardens?
4: It's been massive. We have seen a huge and unprecedented rush on on everything, on seeds, um, plants and bulbs through all of our online um, you know, order processes as well as in our... Um gardens and our retail shops which unfortunately we have had to close um, late last week but the big thing that we've seen is um, an increase or a demand for our edible seeds which um, probably comes as no surprise and I guess I mean, as you mentioned, Kalia, the reasons for that are multitude, but mainly I think it's that incredible solace that people are finding in the garden and the well-being they're getting from gardening. Um, but also the the skew towards edibles, I think. Um, kind of shows what we've, you guys and and diggers have been talking about for a long time and that is the importance of local food resilience and the value of growing at least some of your own food. So, um, you know, there's so much to unpack around what's driving people at the moment, um, but I think there are some really good long-term sustained uh, responses that we could see out of this because I think people are connecting with their gardens and and with their food supply,
0: um, for the first time in many cases, I, I think, just think it's a fascinating thing. I mean, I'm hearing too that people are, you know, getting chickens, and I suppose um, this idea that people are really, yeah, thinking about what can be done at home. I'm not sure if there's similar runs on on hardware store suppliers or whatever, but I mean, when when you say a step up, Donna, I mean, how many? Seed, seed packets of seeds and, and so forth. Do you do you normally trade at diggers, and and what's the increase been in recent times?
4: Yeah, so when I say we're overrun, I kind of mean it. We've just decided, you know, half an hour or so ago that we're going to have to put a little pause on orders and I'm really at pains to make sure everyone understands that that's not about a shortage of supply at all. It's just about our capability to process and dispatch orders and look after our staff. Um, Obviously with all the distancing that's required to keep everyone safe, our um, dispatch capacity is reduced. So um, we, at the same time as that's happening, we've seen something like, you know, more than a 300% increase in um, in orders on seeds. So a huge, um, a huge increase. Uh, so we just need to kind of pause orders for, for a week or so while we catch up. And then we can open up again, all going well. Of course, as is the case for everybody, um, you know, things are changing pretty rapidly every day as well. Um, but we're just having to kind of prioritise the safety of our staff. So that's part of the reason that we're um, we're pausing orders for this week. But, yeah, we have seen over a 300% increase in, in feed orders. Wow. And across the board, um, all orders have doubled. Membership of the club has also seen something like a 100% increase in the last week alone. Um, so it's been huge. And, you know, I, I guess the thing the thing that we have to remember, like there's, it's really twofold, I think, the reasons for that. And some of it is a really kind of deep change that I hope is long lasting. The one kind of simple change is just the time factor I think like I don't know about you guys, but I'm suddenly, you know, baking sourdough and building a greenhouse because I've actually got time to do these things that I've always wanted to do. If
0: anyone knows me, they know it's not me doing it; it's it's my family. <laughs> I can
1: see your partner now. I can't
0: he's oh, he's doing, doing great things at home for twenty years.
1: <laughs> yeah, he he was cool before it was cool to bake sourdough.
0: <laughs> and I've yeah. never been cool and never will be, but you know, it's all okay. It's not about me at these times, but it is. I I mean this idea that this stuff is on people's kind of wish list to-do list and all of a sudden there's the scope they're at home for lunch and all these sorts of things they've got time to to rise bread and then bake it in one day you know
4: exactly there's time but and prioritization. so that's what's exciting for me in the long term that we're looking at what is important to us but the other huge thing are the benefits of gardening, which I think are hitting home to people, and they're also multitude. Like, I remember you guys, you know, us 10 years ago, Carl, you're talking to Adam Grubb when um, the science was quite new about the serotonin uplift in putting your hands in the soil and the microbes in our soil actually increasing our well-being, and that's now well-known and you know things are already massively moving in that direction so there's the well-being benefit there's the environmental benefit there's our carbon footprint there's all these things that are driving people but there is the food security aspect too and I don't want to overblow this but I don't think we can ignore it because um, you know obviously we don't have a food shortage problem in in this country um, at the moment. But I think for the first time, we're seeing, for most of us anyway, who were were born in Australia, for the first time we're seeing scarcity. And it's giving us a really visceral... Understanding of our connection to our food supply, and that's making us want to connect in and take a bit of control of what we can, we might be able to grow in our backyard or our balcony. And just understanding where our food comes from is happening on a deeper level than I think it's happened before. And I think that's why we're seeing the spike in edibles. Even though you know these these people's brassicas aren't going to be on their table next week. It's going to take you know a couple of months before people see the fruits. of their their gardening, but um, people are getting it for
1: the first time. I think that's a really good point because, you know, in in these times where really being asked to take control of what we can take control of, obviously when there's a global pandemic, um, and we're not sort of all medical experts with, um, you know, whiz machinery and a vaccine and so on. All we can really do is, is isolate and, you know, really reduce the amount of time we spend outside the home and that sort of thing. And I think growing your own food absolutely plays into that whole idea of, of controlling what you can for the greater good, and particularly, I guess, being part of a community as you do that as well, which, um, you know, Diggers Club provides. Um, and absolutely, you know, being part of Triple R has been a really beneficial thing for us to keep doing what we do to maintain that sense of normality once a week. But it's one thing you can control just as you can control part of your kind of food source. 100%
4: Dylan like for me I think it's all about those connections and relationships that we're really understanding the value of on a deep level and that might be connection to food supply and our food source or connection to our neighbours or our community and really um, like I love that link you've made with radio too because you know gardening provides that link to our food that connection to our food and what you guys do and community media provides that connection with each other. And these things are more valuable. They've always been more valuable than ever, but now we all, you know, they're no longer just nice things to have. They're things that we absolutely fundamentally need. Mm. Um, so I think that's, a, I mean, it's, you know, it feels a bit twee to be talking about positive, but I just hope that these, this, this obviously is a paradigm shift on on a global scale and that these are some um, these changes and this recognition will be sustained beyond you know the coming months that we're all um, that we're all just adjusting to
0: yeah and it is really just a kind of a week or so in since the the schools um, um, brought forward school holidays and the like and I imagine that people donna are uh, are looking for gardening activities with kids as well because, you know, if people are lucky enough to have gardens or even pots, it is something that you can do together as well.
4: Totally. And we're going to be focusing on getting some, you know, clips and we've got a lot of how-tos and videos and things out Um, through our website and socials and stuff but we'll definitely be ramping that up to try to make sure that all these people because for the first time for us a lot of them may be absolute beginners whereas in the past the diggers club has you know lots of people who have been our members have been already quite you know serious or passionate gardeners and we're conscious that a lot of people might be new now and we really need to support them and we're all about making sure that they succeed in their garden and they keep gardening. So we'll be trying to push out some um, you know, how-tos and stuff and information to help, help make sure that all these people get the success and the food that they want from their gardens. Um,
1: and yeah. just, just in terms of, of that massive run on um, seedlings, I mean, what are people mainly going for in these times? Is there any particular kind of plants or seeds that are, are attractive to people?
4: I think, well, definitely the edibles and the autumn planting edibles. So, you know, brassicas, um, um, green leafy things like, and, and faster, um, faster growing vegetables. But it's not just that either. It's across the board. It's also, you know, flowers and people having the time to do these things that they've kind of wanted to do for a really long time. So it's across the board, but I'd say the autumn planting edibles has definitely been, you know, the biggest thing. Mm. And I did want to say too, while we are pausing, like, as you said, Kalia, it's, it's about the community and the connection to each other and to other gardeners. And that's also what, the whole idea of a club has been about for ages is helping people to access different, you know, a diversity of seeds that they can then um, collect and save and share with other gardeners. And that's the big big key and connecting point for diggers for us is in terms of that connection to food security. Like, for us, it's always been in the hands of backyard gardeners and it is. Um, We've, you know... there's hundreds of thousands of of people who have been planting heirloom seeds forever and that's where our real food resilience lies in, in us all sharing our seeds with each other, sharing our produce with each other and that's just coming into its own in these times. So we really encourage, even if you can't access all the things that you want to right now, you know, get online with your local, with your neighbourhood group, or you know, your local food group, or even just your local um, grower, your, your, your local organic grower, and you know, source seeds, share seeds, and make sure you're collecting them from your own garden.
0: It's really affirming, isn't it really when you when you talk about how you know i don't know how long it's been for the diggers Club quite a few decades in existence, so this idea that you can come into your own at the biggest crisis any of us know ever in our lives it's quite yeah well, it's affirming really for the kind of for the club, i imagine
4: uh look I, I guess we don't really we're not really seeing it in those terms as much as just you know we've 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 always believed in the mission of the place and we just see it now as more important and urgent than ever and i think that's probably the case you know even for yourselves for all gardeners it's like Gardening has never felt more purposeful as than it does right now, and sharing our seeds has never felt more important.
0: It's really true, actually. Um, like I was watching, I mean, there's a there's a local neighbourhood garden in my area, and it's not fenced or anything, and there's heaps of space for social distancing. And I did notice people I'd not seen before going in and sharing in those vegetables that are, are there. They don't need to go to a shop or anything like that. And it was quite a wonderful moment to see that this, this garden that others had created for the community all of a sudden is able to serve the community at this really um, kind of strange time that we find ourselves in.
4: Totally, and it's a bit the same with Triple R, I imagine. You know, there's a reason that we've all been banging on about all this stuff for decades, <laughs> and it's because it's really important. And, I mean, I, I think of the Blazies, Penny and Clive Blazey, who founded the Diggers Club, and they have been banging on about this stuff for 40 years. And, you know, some of us have gotten on board, definitely. You know, we've got such a strong membership of people who've always been tuned into that. But I think now they've got this There's this broader Understanding of, oh, that's what food resilience and food security means. Um, You know, that's what open pollinate. That's why open pollinated seeds are are so important. And it it is, you know, it is kind of coming into its own in a way. And hopefully, we'll just keep pushing um, and keep growing. Um, as a movement in in the coming times,
0: well, it has to yeah, and all the best for the next week as you restock and regroup and um well not regroup but you know what I mean actually um,
1: regroup yeah.
0: <laughs> and get ready for a continued um, uh, demand for for your services over there at the Diggers Club Donna and it's so good to have you on Triple R maybe we can get you back again soon I'll, I'll think of a reason for sure
1: it's all It'll lovely be an angle. to
4: hear
0: your voices <laughs> thank you likewise Cheers, Donna take care everyone bye. Uh, Donna Morabito, and as uh, she said um, during that conversation, she's with the D- Diggers Club. Um, they've put a pause on their orders just for the moment while they catch up. Um, absolutely nothing to do with supply issues, just a catch-up as they kind of adjust their their dispatch to suit the times. Um, but at the same time, a 300% increase in orders for their seeds and associated plants and the, and the like, especially edibles. So um, give them a bit of space. It's just
1: amazing to see which industry. Are completely overrun in these times and which have, have completely shut down because they've had to. It's yeah, it's very strange times, but thankfully people are um, you know purchasing things from community groups such as Diggers Club and keep an eye on all their social media pages so when they're back up and running and you can you can get back involved.
0: And lucky the post still works, it so does. we can get our alien seeds in the mail.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.